Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy BespokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Bienvenido al BespokeCast y felicitaciones al tri y todos los fanáticos de fútbol mexicanos también. Welcome to BespokeCast and congratulations to the Mexican national team uh, upsetting uh, Germany uh, this week at the World Cup and, and to their fans. They're very happy down in Mexico and we are thrilled to be joined by uh, my close friend and a very talented analyst uh, based in Mexico City, Horacio Cotino. Uh, Horacio, welcome to BespokeCast. Oh, thank you, George. It's my honor to be here. Thanks a lot. It's great to have you. We're going to dive really deep into Mexican politics, into the politics of NAFTA renegotiation, into the market implications of the Mexican election this summer and NAFTA renegotiation that's currently ongoing. Uh, lots to digest and, and learn about and, and really learn about Mexico in a way from a market-oriented person who's... Uh, you know, a Mexican citizen himself lives in Mexico City and has a lot to share about uh, the the Mexican economy and the Mexican people. So we're really excited about that. Uh, Horacio, how do you enter the uh, financial services industry? You've, you've got a relatively long resume, so it'd be great to hear a little bit about how you worked your way into the industry. Oh, thanks, George. Uh, so, well, first I studied uh, here in Mexico City. Uh, I went to university and I got my bachelor's degree in financial management uh, or finance. They got some funny titles here. Uh, and then I decided to, the first part of my career was focused on microfinance. I, I wanted to give my career a, a social perspective uh, because the the curriculum of my university was very markets oriented or you know financial markets oriented investments etc uh, after that i was lucky enough to did to to do a small uh, diploma in in canada and worked as uh, and got an internship as uh, uh, in sorry i got an internship at rbc dominion securities and worked for a vp financial advisor which was great, which was great because it would allow me to look at the financial markets from a different angle other than uh, the one based in Mexico. Um, I would help him, you know, um, service clients, uh, do some financial modeling to assess the, 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 the bar of clients' portfolios, etc. Et, et so that work you did in Canada, that was focused more on the advisory side. Um, was that mostly Canadian equity portfolios or was that global cross-asset? What, what sort of stuff were you looking at there? Yeah, no, it was, it was mostly uh, Canadian portfolios. Um, we, we looked at real estate investment trusts. We looked at Canadian equities. We looked at Canadian uh, fixed income as well. EDFs a lot. Was that a big change going from the Mexican financial markets to the Canadian financial markets? Are there huge differences there or was it, are, are financial markets kind of financial markets? Well, in a way, I mean, the way you look at them is probably, it's probably the same. I mean, do you value a company the same way uh, you would do in Canada as you would do in Mexico? Uh, what you're looking at is a different universe. Uh, for, uh, what you're looking at 
it's also a very different risk profile as well as different expectations from uh, from clients. Uh, I think, for instance, uh, in my experience, in Canada they have a less um, they have less aver- aversion to risk than they would in, in Mexico, for instance. You spent some time in Canada and you then returned to Mexico. Right, correct. And you now work for ETM Analytics. Uh, they're a emerging markets focused uh, research company. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So it's a uh, it's a financial markets research boutique. Uh, their origin is in South Africa, but they also have an office in Stanford, Connecticut. And their their main area of expertise is South Africa and African countries. But now we're looking at covering Mexico and Latin as well. And you're helping to build that business out. Yeah, exactly. What's that like building something entirely from scratch? I mean, in, in my career, I've only ever been a part of teams that sort of have established uh, processes, established areas of focus, and, you know, you can definitely bring new perspectives and bring new approaches to that. But uh, coming, you know, kind of from scratch is a different thing entirely. So so what's that like to be a part of building out an entirely uh, new line of business for that for that firm? Uh, Got to say, uh, it's, it's exciting and it's overwhelming, both at the same time. Uh, I'm I'm in const- I'm constantly in touch with them. Um, you are well. I, I see my role as I see my role as a bridge between, you know, uh, uh, between ETM Analytics, who has some experience in emerging markets, and uh, the Mexican or the Mexican context. And so there are certain nuances. I would even consider them certain cultural cultural barriers of entry that that you have to consider going into uh, and that you have to take into account in, in your strategy as to how approach this very young and this very vibrant uh, financial industry. Could you talk a little bit about those cultural barriers? What, what sort of uh, differences you're finding and, and things that maybe wouldn't, wouldn't be assumed mm-hmm. um, by someone that, that doesn't know as much about it? Yeah, happy to. So, for instance, in Mexico, um, and I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure many people might disagree, but it's, it's it, to me, it's pretty self-evident. So you have uh, you have to establish a reputation, um, regardless of how good your service or your product is, you, regardless of the quality of your work, you really have to establish a reputation be- before engaging clients. Um, somehow here, uh, becoming um, having a friendly or a warm, a warm relationship with, with prospective clients or even uh, partner, even partners, it it's more fruitful than just uh, cold calling them or trying to establish a business relationship from the start. Um, you have yeah, you have to not only show how good you are, but you also have to you know, tap into that Latin, into the Latin uh, vein of um, relations and, and um, how can I put this? Uh, yeah, tap into that Latin warmth, uh, that social dynamic that it's, it, it's pretty, it's everywhere here. <laughs> This is sort of tangential to the conversation around finance, but if you were, um, for instance, uh, launching a, a new product, like like one of the things that's been really gotten a lot of attention this summer is like bird scooters, right? Or the various different scooter companies that are starting up in San Francisco or they're in New York. I saw some in Charlotte the other weekend. Um, you know, 
if you're launching a product like that for consumers in Mexico, would you think, you know, even, on, you know, such a low touch kind of thing, would that approach to building a reputation as opposed to just doing some passive marketing or whatever, it, does that apply there too? Or is it more that um, when you're looking at operating in a Latin American market that for higher touch stuff, like for instance, the sales of research um, or financial market services, um, that's where that becomes more important. Is it is it equally true for both or, or is it more of a, you know, where for higher value add kind of stuff? No, well, it's, yeah, it's more true for higher value add kind of stuff. Um, for instance, I would try, um, yeah, if I if I've got a meeting with a bank with a bank CEO, um, that's that's where the report and the importance of building our relationships come comes in. Whereas if I were to distribute a product, I would have to I, I would have to build a relationship with the distributors um, so that taking my my product. Could you also talk a little bit about what it's like investing in emerging markets and how that requires something of a different mentality from investing in a developed market like the US? So emerging markets every uh, it's 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 kind of a paradox because every emerging market has its own idiosyncrasies and but then we are all part of this category uh, that you know that in a way affects us uh, almost systematically, right? So, for instance, you could have a great idiosyncratic story. Uh, you know, you can have low inflation, high growth, uh, healthy, healthy public finances. But then, if the sentiment towards EM turns negative, uh, it can be, for instance, if you are a value investor. It can be really hard to to be a value investor in emerging markets. Does that apply both at the macro level, like currencies or interest rates, but also at the individual stock level? Definitely, it's. I think it it is even more more palpable, or <laughs> you have to have a way higher pain threshold of threshold if you are pain threshold if you are uh, if you are a value investor in emerging markets. You know, because your stock will be punished. Or will be rewarded, rewarded, rewarded according to EM flows, uh, and it, it, that might be a bit unfair, but uh, it 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 also can eventually pay off. So yeah, um, it applies on both um, on both layers, let's sort of speak. So for instance, so for instance, we look at the risk sentiment towards emerging markets and. We try to see if there is a market bias, as if there is a risk off or risk on sentiment, and you can see that through implied volatility. Um, for instance, our credit spreads tightening or widening, uh, or having currencies prominently, the U.S. dollar getting stronger or weaker, and most importantly, even more important, sometimes it is not the level of rates, it is the expectations uh, or the gravitational force of rate hikes in developed, in developed markets, primarily the Fed. Um, and not only when, but also how fast will, it, will, will they get there, right? So that has a huge, uh, that, that has a big influence in risk sentiment towards emerging markets. Is there a way to overcome that via hedging, or is it something you just have to accept as given? I mean, yeah. I mean, 
yes, of course, you can hedge or you can probably uh, underweight EM if the market is pricing and it's, um, and is, for instance, we see this particular moment as a rotational as a rotational moment, it's not that the cycle has turned over in emerging markets, but yeah, you, I guess you can definitely either, for instance, protect yourself with credit default swaps or uh, not necessarily short or underweight certain asset classes that that have EM exposure or that are on that side or on that side of the trade. Yeah. Also, for instance. Um, Going back to the first question as, as to how how different it is in emerging markets as compared to the U.S., for instance. Uh, for instance, let, if we look at Banxico or, or Mexico's central bank, uh, it has it is it operates on a kind of different uh, minded, not explicitly, but in, but implicitly. For instance, one of Banxico's major concerns are uh, the exchange rate because the exchange rate uh, the best the volatility of the peso can have a, a higher yeah a higher a higher negative effect in the stability of the financial system than let's say uh, hiking rates and then uh, and then assuming that and then as, as sorry hiking rates and then assuming that you will slow down the economy because you're not easing uh, or you're not having an, uh, an easing position as a central bank. And that is because the financial depth in Mexico is not, is, is by a mile, is not as, as it is in the U.S. So the effect of, of rising rates in the, in, lo, in the local credit cycle is not as strong as the signal effect in the currency. Uh, so having that in mind can be can be helpful when looking at other emerging markets as well. It's an interesting time to be an observer of politics around the world in general, but especially in Mexico, there's an election coming up this summer um, that is getting a lot of attention. There are NAFTA renegotiations going on that have the potential to have serious economic consequences possibly negative, um, you know, hope can be held out that there will be positive economic consequences as well. Um, but that's sort of the backdrop for this conversation. Before we launch into the details around what's going on, I think it'd be really helpful for me and, and I'm sure for some of our listeners to get a sort of a, you know, Mexican politics for dummies kind of background and um, especially around Mexican political history, because I know not only here in the United States, but also where I grew up in Canada, uh, the, the history of Mexico is not something that just sort of comes up and you know, is presented to you, like you have to go looking for it. So I think a lot of people um, can sometimes miss that, even though Mexico is a, a NAFTA partner, it's, you know, the second largest uh, border that the United States shares. Um, there are huge Mexican-American and Mexican-Canadian populations. Um, so I would I would love to hear your sort of like what you need to know as background um, for the current um, political context in Mexico. Oh, sure. Um, so I, I think we should go back to probably uh, 1928, 1929. Uh, and by, yeah, and at that point you, ca you could see the Mexican Revolution, which was more, which was more of a civil war. Uh, you could see the consolidation of the, the Mexican Revolution into, 
into different political institutions, right? Um, the the 20s were very chaotic in Mexico. Uh, I don't think before Plutarco Elias Calles, uh, I don't think there was a president that finished his term because <laughs> since 19, since Porfirio Diaz, you know, a, a dictator that ruled Mexico for over 30 years, uh, the end of his tenure prompted the Mexican Revolution. Uh, so there was this civil war to to decide who would lead the country. Uh, Plutarco Elias Calles basically consolidates his consolidates his power and founds the what would be the prologue to the current P, PRI uh, party. He founded the Partido Nacional Revolucionario. So that's um, that's PNR. After that. Uh, the PNR evolved into the PRI, but something that has uh, that is, I think, often missed in in, in Mexican history is that uh, re-election of deputies or congressmen, if you were to call them that, and senators was banned in 1934. Just to clarify, um, you have a series of civil wars or a you know a series of battles that. Um, make the 20s quite chaotic for Mexico. Right. Uh, coming out of that, the PNR forms a, a unity government and firms up a, a sort of an established political order. Um, there is a bicameral legislature, right. right? So there's like a lower house and an upper house, which would be roughly analogous to the United States. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. And just to clarify, those representatives in the, in the lower house, the deputies and the senators in the upper house, they were not elected? So, so they were elected. The, the, there were elections, the, like elections took place. The the big shift that was, I think, that has been the most uh, consequential, the, con the most consequential political event in Mexico's history in the last century, was that in 99, sorry, it's 1933, they banned re-election of at every level. Oh, so they couldn't stand to to you couldn't get elected and then run again the next term. Exactly, right. And it's a huge power graph, because, power graph, because if you had uh, political dissidents in certain parts of the country, uh, and they would they would threaten with being they would threaten you, let's say the party leader, with being re-elected. Re all you had to do is change the game, change the rules of the game, and now they would be out of office once their their term is up. Uh, this had this has this had huge. Uh, this had huge uh, influence in how uh, political parties behaved through the most part of the century. Because if you think about it, uh, you have, let's say again, a congressman. You know, he runs for, he's elected. It's his first term, but he cannot be re-elected. So he he has to look to political to the leaders of the political party to be nominated for something else to advance his political career. Uh, you also cannot punish them as a voter. So you have different candidates uh, for the for the same uh, for for the same seat every every cycle. It's it's a bit insane, and but it concentrates. It, it's uh -huh. so funny because for to an American, one of the things that a lot of 
people think is that you know term limits mm -hmm. need to be very you know a lot lower we need to have more people rotating through congress or the senate or pick you know whichever we obviously have a two-term limit on the presidency but beyond that there aren't any term limits in congress or um the senate and people think oh well if we get more fresh blood in then that will sort of break up log jams that establish themselves um in congress so Obviously, I don't think I've ever heard someone propose that you can't be reelected ever, but um, that's a that's a relatively extreme version of it. But it's it's so interesting to hear an experience from another country where, you know, you sort of tried an extreme version of that and that had really negative consequences in terms of institutional exactly. stability. Yeah, and it concentrates power at the top. Uh, so so you could see through through the history of, of the Mexican Congress. Party, party discipline is, I think, one of the highest you can see in any Congress in any country, right? Yeah. And has that persisted to today? Right. So that's why I wanted to start with that, because this election is, only, is not only important in, this, in the magnitude of it, because it's the, the most, uh, the largest number of public officials that will be elected in Mexico, but it is also the first term of the new political reform uh, that that was approved uh, back in 2014. So this, the, the, the public officials that will be elected uh, in this, uh, on July 1st, in a few days, will be the first ones to be able to run for re-election uh, in almost 80 years, I think. <laughs> the current crop of sitting senators and congressmen, or sorry, the current crop of sitting senators and deputies cannot run for re-election, but then the incoming crop will be able to. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So senators will be able to to sit uh, two terms. Uh, that will be 12 years in total because each term is six uh, for senators and three for deputies. And deputies will be able to run for four terms uh, or be re-elected through, through, uh, through a total of four terms. So that's uh, that's a major shift, and it will definitely change the power dynamics within Congress, within the next Congress, and its relationship with the executive. Mexican elections have always been very party discipline oriented. Have has this has the result been that there have been large swings in support between parties? I mean that that definitely wasn't true from the 1920s to the to the 2000 end of the 1990s because um, you know the PNR which became uh, the PRI uh, Peña Nieto's the current president's party uh, they held power from 1929 to 2000 so it's not like voters would go and punish you know you like you said earlier you couldn't punish your sitting representative by voting for someone else because they were gone anyways but could you not punish the sitting party and and not vote for their subsequent candidate why was there such stability um, at the presidential level in terms of in terms of who was running the country uh, that's a great question. <laughs> uh, I think uh, so. When I when I think of Mexico, sometimes I like to think um, uh, to understand it uh, to, under to understand the current state of affairs. It's like a time machine, a time machine where you travel uh, a bit back in time. Uh, why would the pre hold to hold on to power for seven decades? It's because they were they were able to have a a broad enough tent to please not only uh, conservatives but also liberals. Uh, there there was this uh, how can I say this? Uh, there was there there is this 
capacity of the PRI to adapt to almost any ideology. Uh, their 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 congressional track record doesn't is is not consistent at all, right? Uh, so that plus uh, again having having this vertical structure that allowed them to to run the country in a very uh, almost imperial like fashion. There is this great book on Mexican history called uh, La Presidencia Imperial. The imperial presidency for for English speakers that didn't pick up on that, yeah. And the, and the title says says it all. It's it's a political system designed around uh, around the presidency, uh, with and they held to they held they held a lot of power and they were able to, for instance, we didn't have uh, a trustworthy electoral uh, electoral institute or you know an electoral watchdog until 1994. Uh, it was all run. Gov- it was all run by the government. In other words, you could conduct election fraud easier than yeah. if there was an independent group keeping an eye on things. Exactly. Like the the most the most prominent one being the one in 1988, where you know uh, the son of uh, Lázaro Cárdenas, he was running for president. He was, you know, he was affiliated to the PRI, uh, this the, the the party in power, but. Once he he didn't get the he, once he wasn't nominated, he founded his own party. He ran for president, and uh, and there there are several there are serious charges of uh, basically the government stealing that that election away from him just because they didn't want to uh, they didn't want to cede power. And that was 19, 1988, and that gave birth. To the PRD, this um, I want to say, quote unquote, leftist party, because the thing is, in Mexico, it's very hard to, uh, you know, to assign a, a certain ideology in a lineal spectrum from left to right. Uh, it's very hard to identify where political parties stand. It's it sounds crazy. I know. Yeah. I I think that I no I I, I this is something that I totally. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I think the best way to do this is to talk about the modern, the, the three different blocks that are currently contending for the presidency and and running together um, as as uh, sort of coalitions, because they, from an American perspective, or even from a Canadian or European perspective, make no sense whatsoever in right. terms of the ideologies that are sort of bound together in these three different groups. So um, I'm just going to quickly run through, you know, the, the three major parties um, in each one. There are three major parties that are each bound together into three major coalitions. So, and then we can talk in, in more nuance, but I'll just quickly like go through them real quick. So uh, sure. everyone for Mexico is the English translation of the first one. Um, it's a uh, candidate for president is Jose Antonio Miede uh, Curibreña. I think I pronounced that right. Almost. Uh, <laughs> they are the PRI, <laughs> almost. <laughs> Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, I guess. Okay. So they are the PRI, which is Currently, roughly center right, the sitting president uh, Enrique Peña Nieto is the is is a, a member of PRI. They also have the New Alliance, uh, which is a centrist sort of liberal oriented party, and then they have the mm-hmm. Green Party stuck in there. So PRI and New Alliance make sense to to work together in a coalition, but then you've got the Green Party uh, environmentalists, which doesn't make a ton of sense. And and that are not like uh, the, they they might be environmentalists on paper, but they are. I think the 
ultra-right party of the country. Okay. So, again, the environmentalist party is the ultra-right party, and that doesn't make any sense either. Right, yeah. Right. So that's one coalition. The second coalition is uh, for Mexico to the front, uh, Ricardo uh, Ricardo Anaya Anaya Cortes. Uh, That is the uh, PAN, PAN, uh, center-right, conservative, sort of neoliberal would be the way to describe them. Um, The PRD, which is social democracy, so, you know, left-wing, not far left but by the global standard but but certainly left wing um and then the citizens movement which again definitely left wing so you've got the neoliberal party um in a coalition with two you know definitely left wing movements and then you come to the third coalition and and this is the one that um is polling the best and, and we'll talk about the polling and who's likely to win and all that but um andres manuel lopez obrador is the um candidate uh, AKA AMLO is the candidate that they're running. Um, they are uh, Morena, which is left-wing populism, Mexican nationalism, labor. Yeah. Um, they used to be Maoist, so they're they're far yeah. left, like hardcore left-wing. And then the social encounter party, which is social conservatism. So you've got extreme left-wing, extreme left-wing, um, extreme left-wing, left-wing populism and nationalism and social conservatives. It just, it doesn't really make a lot of sense from a traditional left-right spectrum perspective of an Anglo right. thinker, or even a, most European democracies wouldn't have this, anything like this. So, um, yeah. yeah, so do you, I mean, I don't know what the <laughs> right way to proceed from that is, but I just wanted to sort of lay that, that, that map of the, of the territory out, because it really takes a little bit of thinking to get your head around, even understanding how these groups could be together, let alone why. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think one of the, um, since there is, there is, uh, a glaring, a glaring absence of absence of, uh, of you know of ideology, ideology or values structure. What you have to look at is the pragmatism behind them. Uh, I mean, the, I mean, you, you you are now mentioning, for instance, the Morena coalition. But if you look if you look closely, uh, one of their one of their candidates for Senate used to be the president of the PAN. The Conservative Party, which in 2006 denounced AMLO, because this is this is AMLO's third run. He's he's a bit famous among financial markets, <laughs> uh, in financial markets, sorry. But uh, the like, like I mean, I know I know people complain about poli- in the U.S. about politicians flip flopping, but this is the this has to be the Olympics of flip flopping. They are on record, categorically, categorically denouncing AMLO in 2006 as a threat to Mexico, and now they are running uh, as his party's candidates for Senate. Um, you know, again, from an American okay. perspective, yeah. this would be like um, a, sure. a, a, a Texas right wing, you know, right wing of the Texas Republican Party. Let's say Ted Cruz. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Ted Cruz or John Cornyn or the other senator from Texas, whoever. Um, in 2020, going from you know running as as that in in 2010 or 2008 or whatever to mm-hmm. going to endorsing Bernie uh, Sanders exactly. in 2020 or someone like that, it just in the United States. And again, I, you know, the United States is not unique in this respect, but I'm, I, I live in the United States, so we'll use that as the template. Um, <laughs> that could never happen, right? <laughs> so it's so interesting <laughs> that it's that it's happening in Mexico. And so I think hard to, un- right. it, it's hard for people like me who don't 
you know, live and breathe Mexican politics regularly to get our heads around how that could possibly be the case. And so to, to sort of tie where you were previously in, is it purely a function of the structure or are there other factors? Another thing that's sort of jumping to my mind right now is we started out this conversation talking about how relationships are so important. Are relationships that dominant in Mexican politics? Is that is that part of it as well um, that allows this sort of ideological structure that really is is nonsensical by the standards of many other countries? Uh, it's more. I think it's more about the political incentives behind it. Um, so you have to you have to keep in mind that. Uh, I like I like to make this analogy because, I mean, an earthquake did take place uh, last year in September in Mexico City, but there was also this other political earthquake uh, taking place, which was this uh, the the structuring or the building of this coalition of Ricardo Anaya, right? So you have the PAN, the Conservative Party, with the Social Democratic Party, the PRD, they are coming together, and it is. It is basic. It, it seems as a very uh, as a function of political mechanics because they have to nominate uh, the same number, the same number of candidates that they would have to that that they would nominate uh, each of the three parties that that are involved in this coalition. But now, it's it's only one list of candidates. You know what I mean? Like. The candidacies are uh, within each of these three parties, instead of being uh, a list of candidacies uh, proposed by each party, it is just one list of candidacies, and it is the same number. So you have these political figures that were marginalized by the political maneuvers of, uh, of the presidential candidate, then president of the party, Ricardo Naya. And it is, uh, and it it feels or it seems that he lacked the sensitivity to build the bridges between those who were left out to welcome them back later, if not as candidates, as members of his cabinet, you know, build these political bridges. So apparently he burned those bridges, um, and now they are like they are. They are looking forward to endorse either Jose Antonio Meade, the current PRI candidate, because they have close relationships with him. For instance, the president of the Senate, being a member of the PAN party, being a member of the same party as Ricardo Nayas, he has endorsed uh, Jose Antonio Meade, right? Because, because he he used to be his boss under the previous administration, but and they are they they have worked they have worked close close together throughout their public life. Uh, so yeah, in a way, that's political earthquake. And then you have this new upcoming party, Morena, founded by by AMLO, uh, that has all this political space that has to that has to be filled, or all these political candidacies, candidacies that he can give away, basically. <laughs> because it's a young party. In, in other words, yeah. AMLO, AMLO is popular. And he has a chance of, of winning, but he doesn't have a huge party infrastructure, a legacy party infrastructure exactly. to fill out 
um, to, you know, to, to, to reward if he wins. So he needs to fill that out. And one of the ways that's happening is by people from other parties or other ideologies hopping on board the AMLO train. Yeah. And now, um, and I think because he sees this as his last run, I think he's welcoming anyone. Uh, and it's a bit absurd because he has insulted them in the past. He has ca categorized them as enemies of the, of the country, etc. And now they are they are best friends. <laughs> and, uh, that that doesn't sound entirely out of place compared to some of the behavior of our president. So I mean, I, you know, I, I, I that 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 I think we can we can share that strange situation um, where former enemies are making nice for reasons that aren't immediately obvious on the face. Um, right. So with that, I think I think that's like a helpful sort of way to wrap up what the landscape is. Um, and we can turn to uh, the positions that that. Well, actually, let's start with polling. And sure. I, I mean, I think at this point, the the most recent polling data I've seen is roughly fifty percent of voters support um, AMLO. Uh, you can correct me on that if that's wrong, but it, you know, a huge plurality. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily an absolute majority, but if it's a three way split and you have close to fifty percent, you're going to win going away yeah. compared to the next closest party. Um, so. Yeah, it's a home run. It, is, is there any world, we'll just get this out of the way, is there any world where he doesn't win? I mean, like, what could, is there any possible situation where he could somehow not win in the elections in two weeks? Uh, well, uh, there has been a lot of chatter about, you know, um, there are a lot of undecided voters uh, who still don't report their votes or their uh, electoral preference to the pollster. Uh, I just, I, I just see his margin as being, um, so he, he's, he's, sorry, he's just, he just got such a comfortable margin that it is really hard to see how even the, the undecided, undecided voters coming in in force. Um, I mean, of course, there, there is always a probability, but it will be minimal. So we can operate under the assumption that, that AMLO is going to win in the election. What are going to be the consequences of that from a uh, policy perspective? Like, what is it that he wants to do from a policy perspective to change the Mexican economy, to um, make changes that would affect um, interest rates or the currency or equities in Mexico? That, that's a great question. Uh, so political, political plat reading political platforms and trying to deduct uh, their specific public policy, it's its kind of hard. It's kind of hard to read the tea leaves on, on what they have in mind. Uh, I th that said, however, I think, uh, I think he will definitely try to implement subsidies. He can't, like, since the energy reform took place, he cannot introduce price controls. It will be too disruptive. But I think he will definitely try to go back to, for instance, subsidizing gasoline. Gasoline, gasoline prices in Mexico are just uh, an everyday hot, hot topic. Um, and it's one where you feel, uh, when voters feel the most pain on or 
or not. As it stands currently, are there any subsidies for Mexican gasoline? I mean, in the United States, we don't have direct subsidies for gasoline. We do have very preferential tax treatment um, in, in a lot of ways and low taxes on gasoline relative to other countries. So you can sort of argue that's a subsidy. There's no direct subsidy, though, in Mexico, um, as there would be in other emerging markets um, around gasoline. Right. So the thing is, uh, uh, the Peñanito's administration going in, they had uh, a subsidy. So and it was, uh, they called it uh, el gasolinazo, which means basically meant that they would uh, slowly uh, do away with the subsidy in the price of gasoline, right? So the the price of gasoline would increase, sustain would have a, a sustained increase, and then you also had the the increase in energy prices, which with the liberalization of the gasoline prices has has had an effect on uh, on the voters um, pockets so uh, so yeah if i if i had a, if i had to bet for instance i would bet lopez brother would bring back gasoline subsidies um, would like to would like to take the reins back from pemex uh, because the energy reform grants much more independence that the state-owned company used to have. He would also like to have uh, to implement more social programs, if not expand the current ones. Uh, that was one of his uh, goals and successes of his turn as major of Mexico City. Um, Just to summarize that list so far, so we've got increased gasoline subsidies, reduce the independence of the state oil company Pemex, and increase uh, the uh, subsidies to the poor of various kinds. So I would assume that's like income support programs, um, lower taxes, or just cash distributions. I, I could, I mean, yeah, I think it, well, they come in the form of cash distributions. He has okay. also, so yeah that, yeah, that that works. And then so that that's all revenue stuff or all um, expenditure stuff. Would he raise taxes to offset the higher spending, or would he simply deficit finance that? What's what what has he said about that? So that so that's the thing. Uh, he has promised to again, he has promised to expand social programs, but he he has vowed to not raise taxes, and even and he and he has even promised to cut taxes, but. How are you going to how, how are you going to to do that? It doesn't that that equation doesn't work out. Um, he has said that well by fighting by fighting corruption, I will find so much savings in in government corruption that I will be able to fund these programs through uh, through cor through fighting corruption. But it doesn't it's not it's not necessarily uh, enough even by the numbers that he's that he's mentioned. I heard someone today compare that um, uh, idea of fighting corruption and how that's sort of like an always used as a piggy bank when, you know, similar in the United States to uh, waste, fraud, and abuse. Um, it's similar to waste, fraud, and abuse in discussions of uh, government programs in the United States where there's always this sort of treasure trove of, oh, well, we'll save a bunch of money with, by cutting back on waste, fraud, and abuse. But even if you, you know, and it, all sorts of people make these claims in, in at the state level, at the federal level, and it, it never, the math never really works out. So similar to that, he, he said he's going to cut down corruption, but that's not realistic. And even if you assume that it is realistic, it, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be deficit finance. So Mexico right now is running something like a 1.6, 1.7% of um, their budget in deficit um, over the past uh, 12 months relative to GDP, which is not 
enormous, but is certainly, you know, a, a decent sized fiscal deficit. There's not tons of fiscal room. The budget was roughly balanced um, in the mid 2000s. And then after the financial crisis hit, it got as wide as about two and a half percent of GDP deficit. Um, and it's improved since as oil has rebounded and um, and so on since uh, the uh, 2015, 2016 period, but it's still, there's not a ton of fiscal room. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense uh, to just deficit finance because Mexico has to maintain confidence in the market. So I, I guess the question is then, is his election purely from the consequences for what might happen to the deficit? Is is that the biggest concern for markets in terms of um, the effect on, on domestic financial uh, assets? Well, I think um, his relationship with the private sector will be will be key to look at. Um, also, how, I mean, there was a friend from London had dinner with one of his economic advisors last night, and he, he came out very optimistic about it. Um, the, thing, I mean, the thing that bothers me is that uh, he's a presidential candidate, goes into a rally or goes to a forum and makes certain promises that doesn't make that just don't make sense, right? And then you have five minutes later, you have his his advisors come out and say, hey, well, you know, he what he really meant to say was, and or even more uh, eerily, <laughs> they come out and say, hey, uh, once he's president, he will pivot. Uh, once he's president, he'll understand, he'll be different, he'll listen to his economic advisors, etc. Uh, I think the, the biggest concern uh, is, revolves around uh, governability and how responsible he will be. Uh, also, it, I mean, this may, might be under the, under, under the radar of financial markets, but I know, I mean, you know how financial markets approach a political event risk like an election. It's basically a binary outcome and everything is... Uh, is black or white, um, while well, when the reality is completely the opposite. You know, it's it's a very rich. Uh, it's a, there are many different shades of gray, uh, but and it's a multi a multi layer event. It's not like Mexico is going to turn into Venezuela as, uh, next year, but it can like the deterioration can happen. So what I want when I when I when I want to where I want to go with this is uh, that he will, but he will probably have uh, a majority in Congress, and that has not had that has that hasn't ha, ha, that hasn't happened since um, the nineties. By, by the majority in Congress hasn't happened since the nineties. You mean there hasn't been unified control of both houses of the Congress and. Uh, the presidency by one party since the 1990s. Right. I mean, Peña has a simple majority, but it, it doesn't have uh, two thirds of um, of, the, of Congress or the well, I think they call it the qualified majority to to have a strong control of Congress. Right. Uh, so AMLO is going to come in with with a very um, comfortable. Uh, a scenario where you have a friendly, uh, when you have a friendly con uh, legislation, and that's when you have to ask whether he will he will like to please uh, his base more than he would like to please markets. 
And it's a, it's, it's a paradox because you have these heightened pressures to create uh, the political space that, to overturn globalization, to turn or to increase nationalism, etc. But you face but their market's reaction will will significantly reduce uh, their monetary and their, and their fiscal space. Uh, so, as, as we have seen with Argentina and, and Brazil, it's I think he he will have some political space to carry out his agenda. But if mark if the market's reaction is somewhat uh, so, somewhat is swings radically against uh, against his favor he will probably run run out, run out of that political space rather rather quickly i think that's a very helpful way to think about it um the the last elephant in the room around policy with mexico and and with the mexican election pending uh, is nafta and we need to talk about nafta because i think um you've had a couple different notes um under the title Nafta La Vista, which is very creative. I um, <laughs> uh, wish I had thought of that one myself. Um, where you sort of make the case that in in the very near term, the United States, if they want, if the, if negotiators want to renegotiate Nafta, they are running out of time to do that. And the reason for that is that they're going to face a Mexican government that is not going to be as acquiescent. Now, I have heard other perspectives on that and we can we can we can get to that but but um can you sort of walk through the case of of why that is that that there is a very short timeline and and we're literally at this point talking weeks um to get some sort of renegotiation on nafta done um or the window will be gone and getting that through mexico's um, legislature and past amlo is is going to be way harder uh so, so can you talk a little bit about why that's the case right exactly so uh, so NAFTA is being uh, is being negotiated under the TPA, the Trade Promotion Authority. Um, that is a constitutional construct that uh, basically establishes the the relationship between the U.S. Congress and the executive branch when when negotiating a trade deal, right? So uh, the the TPA establishes informational and notice and notice requirements. Uh, what we're, what we're looking at now, uh, I mean, what would have what would have to happen for the process to be undertaken is is a notice of the U.S. Trade, of the United States Trade Representative to Congress of intention to sign the agreement. That has to, so. In other words, we're done negotiating. We're ready to sign. Congress, right. we're going to sign this. Yeah, but you have to do that ninety days. Prior to sign, prior signing or entering the agreement, right? So, uh, whenever the announcement is made, you have to count 90 days thereafter for Trump and Peña Nieto, or eventually, probably AMLO and Trudeau to sign to sit and sign it. Uh, and once the once each uh, each of the of the NAFTA partners sign it, signs it then they send it back to their own Congress. In, in Mexico's case, uh, the new Senate convenes in, on September 1st. So the, I think the most optimistic scenario is where one where before September 1st, uh, you know, the USTR gives notice of intent to sign, and then 
it is signed it is signed after it is signed between September 1st and December 1st December 1st is where is when the the, the upcoming Mexican president takes office the new congress that's elected this summer will sit at the start of september the new president won't sit until the start of december exactly so there's a window there where you have a new congress but the old president exactly right i mean and of course it will it will be challenging for peña nieto to uh to lobby this new congress because it will most likely be uh it will be it will most likely be friendly towards AMLO, but at least he still has uh, the executive uh, the executive authority to negotiate the agreement. Uh, the, the risk because like the risk really uh, exacerbates once the negotiations carry on onto, uh, onto an AMLO presidency because he has publicly denounced the, the negotiations he has called for basically uh, suspending the negotiations until the next president takes over conveniently. And, uh, and I think his base is one that is not necessarily NAFTA friendly. So imagine coming, ima imagine NAFTA negotiators going, uh, talking to these new Mexican negotiators and saying, Hey, this is the progress, the progress we have done. And they are like, well, we have to renegotiate that because we're not comfortable with the compromises or the progress that has been made so far. Uh, and I think given uh, the current uh, U.S. administration, that could definitely uh, backfire. If there isn't some sort of deal signed 90 days before the start of December, so basically if there isn't a deal signed by the start of September uh, between the various um, groups in involved in the negotiations. So that's Canada, the United States and Mexico. If we, they don't all get on the same page as negotiators and say, we're, we're good to go. Then the person that would have to agree to that deal is going to be AMLO. And he is, has given every signal that he's not going to agree to it. So what happens if he just says, no, we don't want to agree to this. We don't, we're not happy with the agreed negotiations back to the negotiating table. What, what is it, is it, um, is the only option at that point for the United States to pull out entirely? Or, I mean, presumably they could negotiate with, with the new Mexican government, but that negotiation is going to involve much more intense trade-offs. Uh, Peña Nieto has been pretty acquiescent in a lot of ways um, compared to anything close to AMLO's rhetoric. So, so is, is then, I mean, really the only thing left is either keep it as is or pull out? Um, if you're an Amer from the American perspective. Well, from the American perspective, uh, there are three contentious issues that, um, that that are still being negotiated. You know, the sunset clause, the the dispute settle settlement system, and uh, and uh, rules of origin for for auto parts, right? Uh, now, for instance, I think the the issue here is like they. Uh, the U.S. administration not only has to negotiate with uh, with their counterparts, Mexico and Canada, but they also have to consult and sometimes negotiate uh, with Congress. So, uh, from what I've read and from 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 our research, Trump has the authority to unilaterally announce withdrawal. Will he do it? 
as a as a negotiation as a negotiation as a negotiation tactic uh, f to pressure NAFTA partners, or will he do it as a negotiation tactic to pressure his own Congress? Um, now, Mexico, both Mexico and Canada have said that they, they will they would walk out of that they would walk out of the negotiation negotiating table if if he announced withdrawal. Uh, and and sorry, and I and I should I should specify, announcing withdrawal grants you a six-month grace period where withdrawal is not materialized until the end of these six months, uh, until the, uh, the end of six months. So during, during these six months, uh, the, the, the White House can rescind withdrawal and everything goes back to status quo, right? Uh, so it's a very, uh, it's, it's a great tool for the, for the White House to use because it's an after partner that has the least to lose. Uh, I mean, if you look at Mexican imports as part of the GDP, 20% of NAFTA imports to, to, into Mexico, uh, sorry, 20% of GDP, uh, now sorry, NAFTA imports account as 20% of GDP for, for Mexico. And NAFTA exports account for almost 32%. As Mexico, as Mexico's GDP, of Mexico's GDP. So it's Mexico is the one that has the most to lose. If I, and I think this administration is is aware of that. Uh, I'm not sure the the other administrations will be aware of that. Having said that, you also have this notion that well, it's okay because Mexico will get the World Trade Organization's most favored nations tariffs, and you can live with those, true. But uh, then the, sorry, but then the, uh, from our research under the Trade Act of 1974, uh, the president, like after withdrawal is, is terminated or materialized, the president has, uh, has to recommend to Congress, appropriate appropriate rates of duty for all articles which were affected uh, by determination or or withdrawal. So Trump can choose. Uh, it, it's not um, it's not a given that Mexico will go back to an MNF tariffs uh, to M yeah to an MNF tariffs. It's it's up to the U.S. president to decide that. So uh, NAFTA Vista is an, is. Yeah, U.S. withdrawal from NAFTA is a pretty dim scenario. I think it's worth emphasizing, too, that while relative to uh, GDP, Canada and Mexico both have much more at stake in maintaining NAFTA, um, either renegotiated or in its current form, um, that's not to say that the American economy would be completely, um, you know, unaffected by right. uh, the, the NAFTA scenario, the NAFTA withdrawal scenario. And, um, you know, both from a actual output perspective, a business profits perspective, um, employment, um, especially in places like the Midwest, there's an enormous amount of jobs tied to specific um, export partnerships with Canada and um, Mexico. So, you know, while uh, we're saying, okay, Canada and Mexico, Mexico especially has a lot more to lose with an after renegotiation, um, the impact on the United States would also be very negative. So um, I, I, I think, you know, th this is a very complicated and, and I think your research does a good job of fleshing out how intricate some of the timelines are. But I, I think to sort of put it into a 
into a bottom line, what we're looking at is the, the, the election is going to come, then we have, if we don't have a deal by the start of September, um, so if August is done without uh, a firm deal um, between Canada, Mexico, and the United States, <clears throat> then the odds of a renegotiation in the current framework fall off a cliff, basically zero. We may be starting from square one. At that point, the ball is effectively in the president's court mm. over whether he wants to withdraw from NAFTA or not. And if he doesn't withdraw from NAFTA, either as a tactic in negotiation or as an actual withdrawal, then NAFTA doesn't change. In other mm. words, the odds of NAFTA changing have, with AMLO being elected, the odds of NAFTA changing would go down, the odds of withdrawal would go up, and the odds of staying in maybe would go down, would go up a little bit, staying in unchanged. Is that a fair framework to, to think about? Um. I think the the odds of uh, of the U.S. withdrawal with sorry the, uh, yeah I think the odds of the U.S. withdrawal from NAFTA go up once Amlo comes into office. Um, yeah, it's just uh, I mean it's convenient for both of their for both of their bases or for both of their audiences, uh, regardless of the I mean and. I think both men, both men may have might have a bit of disregard for the long-term economic consequences. Um, so, yeah, uh, I mean, you're pretty right about that. It's just, I think, I think that a deal would be harder to to get to because you would have to basically start negotiating with a new administration that has a very different mindset towards global trade, etc. Alrighty, uh, that is a long and heavy and detailed conversation, and um, I think it's great to sort of flesh some of this stuff out because um, a lot of it is going on sort of out of public view in the U.S. and and around the world, and so it's been great to get your thoughts on that, um, uh, Horacio and. Um, it's, this has been a really fun conversation. We like to close out with a segment called Trading Rich or Trading Cheap, uh, where we talk about um, different things that um, maybe are overrated or underrated, fairly valued, undervalued. So um, given that we just had a long conversation about this, so this can be a, a short answer. Do you think the odds of uh, the United States staying in NAFTA are trading rich or trading cheap? Do you think people are are overrating the odds that we're going to leave uh, NAFTA, uh, the U.S. withdrawal from NAFTA, or do you think that's an underrated risk? I.e., it's people are too worried about that. Um, no, I think. Uh, no, I mean I think it's an underrated risk, so it's probably trading. It's trading cheap. Uh, I mean, this is despite this is despite the U.S. efforts to you know um, persuade or influence NAFTA partners to come into an agreement relatively fast. Um, that's how we view the aluminum and steel tariffs. Uh, and that's how we view the 232 auto um, investigation. Remember that or the investigation into auto, import, auto parts imports as a matter of national security. Right, which is and a similar is, pretense that the administration has used to conduct all sorts of um, right. tariff and, and trade interventions or, or begin the process for um, elsewhere. Right, I think that, that speaks to the core of the urgency of the U.S. administration trying to get a deal sooner rather than later. Um, but we'll see, yeah. As you said, there is 
event risk, but it's not necessarily binary. So, so how do you think about the, as you described it, the multi-level and shades of gray event risk um, that the Mexican elections, for instance, present, as opposed to a binary yes/no kind of risk? I think what you have, I think the most important question, uh, and one that you might not be able to answer quantitatively, but probably qualitatively, is how overbought or how oversold is a risk premium surrounding an event an event risk or and and in this case a multi-layer event risk uh, so based on on the based on the risk premium then you have the secondary derivative can be uh, a look or an overview of their asset classes and how it compares is it compatible for instance with the local uh, with the local macro idiosyncrasies or idiosyncrasies, or is it, and how does it trade compared to other emerging market peers? Uh, basically, the question that you could ask is, for instance, uh, how high of how high of an implied yield, how high of an implied yield would you be comfortable holding to make up for the risk premium of, let's say, an AMLO presidency? or the risk premium of Mexico being um, being out of NAFTA, right? Uh, once you find uh, the mar- once you find your own assessment and then you compare it to the market, is or to the market's risk assessment, then you can probably position yourself accordi- accordingly. Um, so that's 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 how I would look. That's how definitely I would look at it. I would look at, for instance, the implied rates, uh, the bond, Mexico's implied rates, Mexico's bonds. Uh, is that, is that a, let's say, is that a yield level that I'm comfortable with when I compare it to other uh, idiosyncrasies and the and the prospective outcomes? Um, and also, may I might add, it is, I think. Last year, it was very easy to price in a lot of blue sky in emerging markets. Uh, for instance, uh, I think the uh, some of the, let's say, the pricing of the 100-year bond in Argentina was pricing in an absolute beautiful blue sky that would entail everything had to go well to 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 have those prices. So I think the market probably underpriced the the risk premium, and then you have these developments that deteriorate the the, the prospective uh, the the prospects of certain emerging markets. So that yeah, that's how that's how I would look, I would look at it. What are the ingredients of the of the risk premium too? Okay. Uh, with all that in mind, trading rich or trading cheap? Uh, the Mex Bowl. Uh, uh, Mexican equities, the, the broad equity market in Mexico. Uh, trading cheap, but I'm not sure if it, it's trading cheap enough. <laughs> <laughs> not exactly a great sign of confidence there. Um, I mean, I, I will definitely buy, but, uh, but I think it can be. I'm not sure we have. I, I'm not sure the market has priced all these risks. Um, completely yeah 
Last one, uh, we had a, a fantastic game uh, last Sunday. Uh, El Tri, uh, the Mexican national team, uh, beat Germany 1-0 uh, to open their World Cup campaign. Do you think the prospects for uh, uh, Mexican uh, soccer, Mexican football, uh, are trading rich or trading cheap right now? Um, oh, definitely. Oh, definitely trading cheap. In you think they're gonna? You you think they're gonna do better than people think they will after that opening win? Oh yeah. Yeah, that that is, I think that changed the mood and the narrative, at least from within the country and whatever. Uh, yeah, it's it's been yeah it's been a great source of joy for sure. Well, we're all happy to see that. Uh, I think that's something we can all get thank behind you. a little and bit. Thank of... you for your support, oh. George. That was that was great. Yeah. <laughs> I think we can all get behind a little sports nationalism now and then. Uh, <laughs> Horacio Coutinho, uh, you can follow him on Twitter uh, at uh, Horacio Coutinho. That's H-O-R-A-C-I-O-C-O-U-T-I-N-O. Uh, he is an analyst at ETM Analytics, uh, the Mexico strategist there. And this was a great conversation about Mexican politics and uh, NAFTA and all sorts of fun stuff there. So, uh, Horacio, thanks so much for joining us. It was a, it was a pleasure. Hey, thank you. As always, George. It's, it's a pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week on The Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Our research includes reports, analysis, commentary, and data sets sent out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music featured in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2017, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.